All right, now, Ephesians chapter 1. Just a couple of verses we'll be looking at this morning, verses 9 through 11, (laughs) which I pulled out. I don't know if you know this, but Paul wrote a single sentence from verse 3 to verse 14 in Ephesians 1. Um, We, of course, couldn't handle that today. I sure couldn't. So most of our modern translations have broken them down into bite-sized pieces. I want to pray before uh, we get started this morning and ask God for his help. Um, The things that we're looking at these Sundays are deep waters, um, challenging waters, hard to understand things, and yet, um, especially as we're going to see in the final message in the series, so vital and impacting in our lives to get a hold of them. So let's ask God for his help. Father, we uh, acknowledge you as a great sovereign, great I am, King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of all, um, second to none. Uh, We worship you as all of that, and yet the one who has um, brought deliverance to us um, didn't make us try to pay for our own sins in some fashion, but offered, freely offered, your son, on our behalf as our substitute. Um, We'll never get over that. And um, so much of who you are, I know you get a lot of criticism today, but so much of who you are we have to look at through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, even if I don't understand that, I understand this glorious gospel and this self-giving that was true of you in giving your son. Uh, We love you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak this morning, um, speak to me, speak through me, and speak a part of me, uh, apart from me as necessary. Pray for clarity of thought that uh, we all might be encouraged and our eyes might open more widely to the glorious character of your personhood. That our worship might be uh, not only in spirit, but in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So we started last week talking about God's sovereignty. Bishop J.C. Ryle, who was the first bishop of Liverpool, England back in the late 1800s, observed, of all the doctrines in the Bible, none is so offensive to human nature as as the doctrine of God's sovereignty. We find it offensive to imagine that he has the kind of power that he claims in Scripture. Um, We're troubled by the apparent lack of autonomy that we have and so we're instinctive I think for uh, I think for most of us it's instinctively uh, a problem I used to um, tell um, people when I taught this um, when you dive into this it's going to be very very excruciating and it's going you it's going to be problematic but if you work through it over a season you come out the other side it will be radically impactful in your life. And I pray that for all of us as well. The title of my sermon is a question this morning, who wears the crown in your universe? Who wears the crown in your universe? Uh, Back in 2016, George Bush, uh, 45, was having a press conference. He was very frustrated. (laughs) And uh, it was about whether or not Donald Rumsfeld was going to stay on as Secretary of Defense. And... uh, (laughs) He said, I read the headlines, I hear the voices, but I'm the decider. 
I get to decide. And uh, so that's what I'm talking about this morning when I ask the question, who's the, who wears the crown in your universe? In other words, uh, not just do you, who, who do you bow the knee to, but who's in charge? Who has the crown that is bigger than all the other crowns? Who is the one who says, I decide, and that's the final decision? There's a poem that was written back in the 1900s that has become very popular in our day. Its title is a Latin word, Invictus. It means unconquered. And the final lines of that poem go like this. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. In other words, I wear the crown. I am the captain of my soul. But of course, the author of that poem, William Ernest Henley wasn't. When he wrote it, he was just 27 years old and he had already suffered horrible pain for years with tuberculosis, a disease that would eventually take one of his legs and then eventually take his life at the relatively young age of 52 years old. There's been a big debate in the church for literally centuries over God and free will. Which trumps the other? Does God decide some things and we get to decide all the others? Who gets the credit when life is great and who gets the blame when it stinks? Is God God? This is, I'm going to betray my prejudice here. Is God God or am I God? Is God God or am I God? Now the three religions of the book, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, have all argued in their holy books that God is in control of all things in some way. What's interesting is that even secular man has begun to have this argument in the last 150 years. It began in the wake of Darwin's book, The Origin of the Species, back in the mid-1800s. He had a cousin by the name of Sir Francis Galton who thought, hmm, if we've all descended from a common ancestor and all of the uh, all that we are is really the result of our ancestors, then doesn't that mean that everything that we are, that we think, that we do, decide, is really dictated by our heritage, dictated by our genetics? And so for about the next 70 years or so, that was the raging debate among secularists and even among some people who were religious. And then in the 1900s or 1920s or so, there began to be a new it, I call it a God, a new it that uh, fought against free will. And this was the idea, not now of her, uh, heredity, but environment. That environment shapes who we are and what we do and what we think and the decisions we make. Where once we thought it was our genes and passed down from our ancestors, or even our intelligence is made and shaped by our ancestors, now the idea is it's our environment. And so it depends on the home that you grew up in, it depends on the community that you grew up in, it depends on what kind of people you are around, and so if you're around criminals, you grow up to be a criminal. If you're around poor people, you grow up to be poor, and so forth and so on. And even today, that belief shapes a lot of public policy in our country. Of course, both of those claims have proven to be false because there's always exceptions to those rules. There's always people who grow up around criminals and aren't criminals. 
and so forth. Now the latest claim by science, the latest thing that is, uh, says we really don't have any free will is the brain. So there's been a lot of advances made in the last 20 years or so in the area of neuroscience, brain science. And it was, uh, uh, of course, we know that there's electrical activity that takes place right before we do something, right? So I just put my arm out like that. In my brain, you could measure that there were electrical impulses, weak though they may be, uh, electrical impulses that took place and then I made a decision, that's the electrical impulses, and then I reached out. Well, with our technology today, we can actually look inside the skull of a living person, look at the brain, and, and draw all kinds of conclusions. I sometimes wonder how right they are, but we can draw all kinds of conclusions about what's taking place in the brain. And interestingly enough, there, there, some scientists have, and more than just a handful, some scientists have come to the conclusion that we really have no capacity to make independent decisions. Our brain, another it, is making all of them for us. Listen to this. A number of years ago, I think it was 2016, an, uh, an article was written in The Atlantic by Stephen Cave, and this was the title. Now, this is a secularist, not interested in God, probably doesn't even believe in God, but the article was, there is no such thing as free will, but we're better off believing in it anyway. There's no such thing as free will, but we're better off believing in it anyway. The better off refers to some experiments that have been done in which they had a control group that was um, uh, convinced that they had free will to make independent decisions. And then there's another group that was that was conditioned to believe that um, they didn't, it wasn't their deciding things. And the, this group did all kinds of things that they wouldn't have normally done if they were going to be held accountable for them. That's why he says we're better off believing in any way. But he reported in this article, the scientists have grown steadily bolder in their claim that all human behavior can be explained through the clockwork laws of cause and effect. In other words, there's things happening in here independent of my choosing, and then I actually choose after that in res in, as response to what my brain is telling me to do. This is the kind of science that's being used in the courtrooms to claim that this person was not culpable for the murder they committed because they were temporarily, what? Insane. And this is going to become more and more common in our courts as science becomes more and more convinced that we have no control over what goes on in here. Uh, there was an actual study done in the 1980s that have le that's led uh, some experiments, not studies, experiments that have led some scientists to make this conclusion the brain is the king. Now I believe, and I'm going to try to make the case today, that God is so big that he is king over everyone, all the choices that people make, and that nothing is outside of his will. Deep breath, let me read that again. That God is so big that he is king over everyone and all the choices that people make, nothing is outside of his will. And yet, 
unlike the gloomy conclusions of neuroscientists, that we really can and do make decisions, honest to goodness decisions. Now to our text, Ephesians 1 verse 9. Now, uh, God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. And furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. My two points this morning, one is not very provocative, the other one is more so. Point number one, God makes plans and carries them out. Now, if you would have heard that before, apart from the context of this sermon, I doubt that any of you would be alarmed. God makes plans and carries them out. The question is, does God just make a handful of plans? Or does God make plans about everything? Because I would have said before 2001 and 2002 when this exploded into my life that God makes a few plans and we make the rest of the plans. God makes plans and carries them out. So let's, let's hold off on the next part for now just looking at verse 9 and 10. God is building today and he will be building tomorrow on plans that he has already made. There's a hint of that in verse 9. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan. He doesn't say God has now made a plan. Apparently he made it sometime in the past. He's only now revealing it to us. But it's going to be executed sometime in the future. Verse 10, the right time he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. He ultimately is going to do that. Now I want to get, give you a, show you a couple of scriptures this morning that try to zero in on this idea that God is fully and utterly and completely in charge of his universe. Isaiah chapter 46. The book of Isaiah is just chock full of so many portrayals of God, not just little, you know, snapshots about him, but vast, uh, mind-bending, cosmic impacting ideas about God's character and nature. This is in verse 10 and 11, God's speaking only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Just stop there and ponder that for a minute. If he can tell the future before it even happens, what does that say about his involvement in the future? About 30 years ago, there was a whole movement within evangelical Christianity that began to say, yeah, we don't think God knows everything. came out of Bethel Seminary out in Minnesota. We don't think God knows everything. And the argument went like this. If God knows everything, if he knows what I'm going to choose tomorrow, then I really don't have free will because I can't choose something other than what he already knows. So they concluded that God doesn't know everything. In other words, they were clinging so strongly to the idea of independent free will that they couldn't have God knowing everything. 
And yet this is what God says. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan might come to pass. Is that what it says? Everything I plan will come to pass. For I do whatever I wish. I will call a swift bird of prey from the east, a leader from a distant land to come, do my bidding. I have said what I would do, and I will do it. That sounds king-like, doesn't it? He is building, God is building today, and he will build tomorrow on plans that he has made in the past. He's building now on past plans. So some of you who are contractors, when you have a job to make, you're going to build a house, you you go over to the house, your truckers go over, and they deliver very expensive plywood and very expensive two by fours. Bought a piece of plywood to make a bed in the back of my traverse back in January, and I, it's just one piece. I bought it and paid for it. I'm like, wow, I must not have bought plywood for a while. I used to get like three pieces for that price. So if you're a contractor, you take the plywood and the two befores and the other supplies over to the lot, you have the trucker dump them on the lot, and then you stand back and wait to see what happens. Right? Now how it works? And the homeowner calls you up and says, it's been six weeks, eight weeks, doesn't seem to be anything happening on my building lot. You're like, yeah, I'm just kind of waiting to see what happens. No, as a builder, you draw up a blueprint, you meet with the homeowner and you find out what they want and you incorporate that into the blueprint, how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, how many square feet they can afford, where you're going to position the house and the lot, and on and on and on. And then you go to the lot and you take that lumber and your workmen build a house from the blueprint. And this is how God does things too. He's made decisions and he's made plans way back there. In fact, what's it say down verse 11? He chose us in advance. Well, let's go up to verse 4, actually. Even before he made the world, right? So before Adam, before Eve, spirits hovering over the waters, before ducks and platypuses and all those things on the earth. Way back then, before he made the world, God loved us. He knew about you. He loved us and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance, way back there, to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Now we'll get into election a little bit later. Can't avoid that when we talk about God's sovereignty. But I want you to note verse 9, this wonderful phrase, which to me is the key to delighting in God's sovereignty. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his, read it with me, own good pleasure. To fulfill his own good pleasure. We see the same thing up in uh, verse, verse five. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. Exact same word. God's plans are for his good pleasure. 
In other words, if we, if we look at how God orders the universe and how he runs it, and we see the bad things that happen to us, if we are thinking that God orders the universe primarily for our good pleasure, we're going to go, I don't think so. God, you're falling down on the job. But if we start with it is for his good pleasure, and, and this is really simply another way of saying for God to glorify himself. When he says, I do things for my good pleasure, might as well simply say to glorify himself. And we go, wait, if I would say that, say I, want, I do things to glorify Keith, if there are good people in the church that love the Lord, they'd say, Keith, I got to talk to you. I mean, the Bible's all over the place. Pride's a bad thing. Yeah, but I want to do this for my own good pleasure. But here's the problem. You and I were made by God. We are not God. There's one being in the universe that is worthy of all praise and honor and worship and glory and power and might, and that's God. And that's what the angels cry out, and that's what the 12 or 24 elders cry out. It's what the four living creatures cry out, that you are wor- you're worthy of all of this. Look at Hebrews 2.10. <clears throat> Hebrews 2.10. God, for whom... And through everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. God, for whom and through whom. So if if somebody asked you, did God make everything? You would say, yep. Everything was made through God. But that little phrase before that, God, for whom everything was made. You were made for God. The beautiful splendor of the West that we're looking forward to seeing in the next few weeks was made for him. Betty and I are going to get to enjoy it, Lord willing, but it was made for him. Everything, everyone made for his glory. If we miss that, life is miserable. If we get that, everything's changed. It's changed. I, I shared with some of you, I don't, I don't remember what I said last few weeks up here, but when those four days before I went to the hospital with COVID, I, I begged God to take me home. I Take me home. But you know what I never said? Why? Because even though I don't know the why, I know that everything glorifies him. Sickness and health and wealth and poverty and difficulties and financial loss and relationship loss and brokenness and it all somehow redounds to the glory of almighty God who is worthy of our praise that's why we're here Romans chapter 11 a little passage I go back to frequently when I get stuck and feel like my praise and worship gets a little stale verse 36 for everything comes from him Note that word, everything. Everything comes from him and exists by his power and is what? Read it with me. Is intended for his glory. 
You live for his glory. You delight in your marriage for his glory. You have broken relationships with your children for his glory. You get sick for his glory. You get better for his glory. You lead this life for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. See, if we see God's glory as the organizing principle of his plans, then we can recognize God's hand when something happens that's less than good and still rejoice. And that's kind of a lead into our final sermon in August that we'll hit. God's plan, in this case, what Paul's talking about, this is the plan, the, verse 10, at the right time, he's going to bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and earth. Now, here's the catch. That does not mean that everything is currently not under his authority. It's under his authority, but there, there are things that go on that are not part of God's perfect will, but he still ordains them. As I said, deep waters. But one day... Everything's going to be under Christ's rule in perfect execution of the glory that God is worth. So God makes plans and he carries them out. Point number two, God's plans are comprehensive. Verse 11 again. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance and he makes a few things work out according to his Is that what it says? Everything. And he makes everything work out according to his plan. Every place in my Bible where it speaks about God's sovereign power is highlighted in green. And that was probably the first one when I got this Bible that I highlighted in green. He chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. And the first part of that is something that makes some Christians swallow. He chose us in advance. God plans to save some. We saw it again in verse 4. Even before he made the world, God loved us, chose us in Christ. God decided in advance to adopt us. Some of your translations say predestined us. We see the words, it's impossible to avoid the doctrine of election in the New Testament. The words election and predestination and choose are all over the place. The only thing we can do is reinterpret those words to mean something that other than I think the apostles mean. I remember reading R.C. Sproul's book, um, Holiness of God when I didn't believe in the doctrine of election. And boy, I had that book all marked up, full of questions, question mark, question mark, question mark. And about 25 years later, I read that book again. And I thought, wonder why I have all these questions in here. Because by then I had been all over the New Testament so many times, I'm like, yep, I just can't avoid it, that God chose me. And then we go, why? I, I got nothing. 
I got nothing. You see, it's God's intention. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Some of you memorize this. It is by grace we've been saved through faith, right? And this not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone boast. In other words, we get before God one day and we got nothing except the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? Got nothing. What do you have to say for yourself, Keith? Jesus! That's all I got. You say, well, what about the non-elect? I had a friend I grew up with all through school from elementary into high school and then I went to Christian school last couple of years of high school, lost track. And one day I walked into the lunchroom, the company I was working for, and there he, was, there he sat. And uh, I'll call him Kevin. We got reacquainted in the days ahead. Turned out he had a big problem with alcohol. He'd been in and out of rehab. My company was trying to give him a, a kind of a second chance and some weeks down the road, he went on a bender. He was out for three days and came back in. And we were talking at lunchtime. And um, he was a professing believer. He'd brought up, been brought up in a church that taught the doctrine of election. And he was in tears. He's looking at his life and he goes, what if I'm not one of the elect? And I didn't know much about this then. And I said, I'm not sure, but I think the very fact that you're asking that question is a good sign. Why? Because, because the Bible portrays that our hearts are so stony and hard and rebellious against God, right? Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so death came to all men because all sinned. We're hardened against God that unless God comes and opens our eyes. And yet the Bible very clearly, and this is one of the, this is one of the areas where we see this amazing God's in control and yet we can make honest to goodness bona fide decisions. And God will hold us accountable at the end of the age if we have rebelled against him. I don't know how to reconcile those two. I just know that both are in the scripture. And I delight in election. <laughs> I don't understand it, but I delight in it. Because now I know that I don't have to hold on to myself. God holds on to me. I love that song a couple years ago. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my faith is often cold. He will hold me fast. I don't know about you, but I'm a mess. I look in the mirror and say, how can God still love me? And I stumble here and I stumble there. How can God still love me? How can I make it to the finish line? He will hold me fast. And he'll hold you fast too, if you know Christ. God turned the lights on for me. It wasn't that I saw the light. 
2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 says this. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And to, to me, it just it makes me more of a worshiper to see and understand this, that God chose me. I didn't ultimately choose him. Now, again, if we get lopsided in the choosing, God choosing us, we can forget that all through the New Testament, there is this picture of us proclaiming the gospel to people and of people responding to that gospel, Romans chapter, Romans chapter 11, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 10, right, right after chapter 9, which is the most profound in-your-face text about God choosing, right after that, in chapter 10, it says this, beginning at, um, well, I have 14 on the screen, but I'm going to read verse 13 as well. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, it doesn't say everyone who's elect will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him, uh, on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? It doesn't say, well, God chose them. No, no. How can they hear unless somebody tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why we want to become a missionary sending church. Because how will they know? How will they hear? How will they say yes? That's why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. God plans to save some. God plans, his, God's plans address everything. So the question is, who has free will? And my answer is God. God has free will. But you and I have a real will. I don't like to use the word free because that pulls us out from under God. Right? The only one that's free is the one who's running things and has nobody to answer to. But I put it this way. We have a real honest-to-goodness will and we can make real honest goodness decisions that result in praise or consequences. Revelation chapter 20, the end of the age. Verses 13 and following. The sea gave up its dead and death and the grave gave up their dead and all were judged according to their deeds. It's not quite accurate to say that people will be judged at the end of the age for rejecting Christ. That's the cause for their, uh, uh, that's the, that's the final, um, that's the final reason, but it's not what they get judged on. They get judged on their deeds, and so would you and I, apart from Christ. 
They get judged on their deeds. And so it says, sea gave up its dead. All were judged according to their deeds. And then death and grave were thrown into the lake of fire. Lake of fire, the second death. Anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, people made choices that led to the consequences. And they can never stand before God and say, but you, wouldn't, you didn't elect me. You didn't call me. You didn't turn me from sin. You didn't hold on to me. And we're all tempted to say, hmm, that just seems impossible. That this could be true, and so is this. Listen, the day you and I figure out God is the day you and I become God. The day we can neatly package God and put him in a box and say, you stay there and behave just the way we want you to. Is the, way, is, the, is the day that we, we have to admit we've made ourselves God and he's now somehow under us. To me, the fact that he is so inscrutable in some areas is simply testament to the fact that he really is God. I agree with the Westminster Confession from back in 1646 that says God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own free will, his own will, Freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. In other words, there are so many other causes of what takes place that carries out what God had ultimately ordained. I put it this way. When I teach this course that I put together on the sovereignty of God, uh, this is one thing I say to the people I'm working with. I believe that behind every sunrise or snowstorm, behind every leopard eating a wildebeest or baby finch that stumbles from its nest and dies, Behind every marriage that's happy, as well as behind every miserable one. Behind each roll of the dice in Atlantic City, behind every financial windfall or bankruptcy, behind every automobile accident, behind every job, hire or firing, behind every cancer in a six-year-old body or a middle-aged stroke or incurable disease, behind every country turning into a Muslim state, God has determined it, but usually secondary forces implement what he has ordained. Big God. Now I have a curveball question to throw at you. So can God's plans be changed? My answer, no. Let me ask you a different question. So can God's plans be changed? Yes. And you want an explanation for that, don't you? Find the Old Testament book of Amos. Amos chapter 7. Well, let me ask you this. If you don't think that God's plans can be changed, why do you pray? 
Why do you pray? Why bother? Amos chapter 7. I apparently haven't read Amos in this Bible yet. There we go. Verse 1. I love the contrast here. The writer begins by calling God the sovereign God. The sovereign God showed me a vision. I saw him preparing to send a vast swarm of locusts over the land. This was after the king's share had been harvested from the fields and as the main crop was coming up. In my vision, the locusts ate every green plant in sight. And then I said, oh, sovereign Lord, please forgive us or or we will not survive for Israel is so small. And so the Lord, (laughs) what? Relented. The Lord relented from his, this plan and said, I will not do it. And then he showed me another vision. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a section. Then the sovereign Lord showed me another vision. I saw him preparing to punish his people with a great fire. The fire had burned up the depths of the sea and was devouring the entire land. And then I said, oh, sovereign Lord, please stop or we will not survive for Israel is so small. And then the Lord relented from his plan too. I will not do that either, said the sovereign Lord. In fact, in the old King James Bible, the word relented is replaced by the word repented. Turns and goes the other direction. I think that all of that is within the scope of God's sovereign plan even our praying and yet (laughs) let's just share this with Ann this morning and yet it was a James chapter oh that reminds me I skipped the other James passage didn't I we're out of time James chapter 4 I think it's verse 2 it says you do not have because you do not what ask there are blessings in God's hand that I've never received because I never asked God. All right, I got to wrap up. Here's, here's my wrap up. God's big. God is big. We are not big. Not as equal. So what's true of him and how he administers his world may be very difficult to grasp. Maybe for some of you even upsetting. I tell people when I go through this study that if you look at God as he is rather than as you'd like to think he is, sooner or later you will become a worshiper the likes of which you have never known. And the power of this world to change your mood, change your fears, impose fears, um, destroy you, will increasingly lose its grip on you. You will increasingly be described as set your mind on things above, not on things below. doesn't mean you become like some wonko Buddhist monk. It's just that you begin to see the world through the lens of the God who made it. You understand him greater and greater fashion. You, you, you be able to say, I don't understand this, but I trust you. 
And if you are not in the middle of tragedy, and I know some of you are, now is the time to learn about who God is and how he orders his world. Because Pastor Charlie and I have talked about this so many times, the time to learn about God's sovereign control over everything is not when you're in the middle of tragedy. It's, it's just too daunting. It's before. And so, uh, I, I've gone through this study I have. It's eight pages long. It's really just a Bible study. Um, if you're interested in it, I'll send, if you send me an email to kroar at keystonechurch.org, I, I will uh, send you a copy of the study if you want to go through it yourself. Please don't uh, ask for a copy if you have no intention of going through it, though. Barack Obama, in his book, The Audacity of Hope, <clears throat> said American values are rooted in a basic optimism about life and a faith in free will. A faith in free will. If you look at the documents of our founding fathers, not just federally, but in the states, you'll find a different story. There's a constant reference to divine providence. Even the deists who weren't really Christians, like Ben Franklin, Tom Jefferson, even the deists believed in some kind of divine providence, that, that, there, that there was a, a God out there ordering the world. That's providence is the purposeful application of God's sovereignty. And so God chooses to show mercy to and save some. Yet all who are lost are lost by their own choice. All are accountable to him. He ordains all things, but every day we make thousands of honest-to-goodness, authentic choices. And probably the greatest picture of God's sovereignty integrated with our ability to make choices is this, is this glorious picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That a God who knew we were going to be sinners long before he created Adam and Eve already had a, the scripture tells us he already put the plan together back back before then went through with it all anyway offered us something I think far better than free will he offers us his loving oversight of the universe a perfectly conceived plan that offers to deliver us all that seeks his own glory and seeks the good of his children and I've come to where I am by conviction but I didn't get there overnight. I wouldn't want to live in any other world. I wouldn't want to live in any other world. And Father, that's my prayer for my brothers and sisters. That they would have a no-blink look at you as you are, rather than as they might want to see you be. And that as they pursue you and plumb the depths of your character and your, nat your nature and your, your decisions, and your oversight of your universe, they might see it not as something threatening, but as something glorious. That they would worship you not only in spirit, but in truth. That they would have a confidence that nothing's going to come into their lives apart from your good and loving hand. 
and that even those who don't know you, who are watching or who are listening, might be struck in awe at who you are and to see that you stooped down and, and in some senses shred, your, your, shred away your, your sovereign power and Jesus came in the form of a man so that he might deliver us and so that one day we might have the ultimate fellowship with you in glory never again to get sick never again to to die never again to have broken relationships never again to be broke but to enjoy the riches of glory with the king of the universe in jesus name amen